I really just sat down with myself and I'm like, what do I want from this? I just don't want to feel anxious or alone. And I'm trying so hard to curate something that's going to make me feel a certain. What if I just remove it completely? I was just, I think I was just sick of it at that point. And I was like, just let's just be done and see how that goes. And it's been going very well. <laughs> it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And to recognize that, we have two conversations that you might find quite interesting. First of all, we're talking to Alex Craven. He's the co-founder of The Data City, and he's someone who was diagnosed with ADHD just a couple of years ago, almost 20 years into his career as an entrepreneur. So we hear a very personal account of how that might have affected him throughout the course of his life and the recognition of how organizations can try and make sure that they are safe places for neurodiverse employees. And then later on in the show, I'm talking to Anne-Sophie Fleury, the head of mindfulness at MindLabs. And we've got some really great tangible takeaways to try and practice good mental well-being. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, powered by Nash Squared, where we talk to leaders from across our industry. I am joined by Salem for today's episode. It's been a while since you've been on the podcast. Yeah, it's been a couple months, hasn't it? You've been busy. Yeah, I mean, you know how the first couple of years of recruitment are. Brutal. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to do a quick uh, public service announcement for anyone who is a regular listener. Uh, I'm going to be in Barcelona for the next three days for the EU Startup Summit, roving around with a microphone. So if you happen to be there, let let me know. Get in touch on LinkedIn or, or whatnot. If you listen to the podcast and going, hang on a minute, I'm going to be in Barcelona, then uh, pop up on any number of different channels, say hello, and uh, we could record. Uh, been to Barcelona before, mate? No, I haven't. I've been to other parts of Spain, not Barcelona. Which which bits of Spain? I have, well, te- Tenerife. I've been to Tenerife, and then obviously Harvey Nash is going somewhere in June so mm-hmm. yeah that should be fun as well and then I have not been to like Barcelona or anything like that so would love to go there I've, I've, I've not been to Barcelona for quite a number of years um, I was about to say so why didn't you just take me with you sorry sorry that you're going in June aren't you <laughs> yeah. you're going you're going quite soon not to Barcelona yeah we are quite soon yeah 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 that'll probably be a fun trip yeah i hope so i mean it's going to be my first working like work incentive trip isn't it so yeah it's interesting to uh, whereas see how this that is a conference be. this is a conference so it's, it won't be as fun as that yeah true say no i'm sure <laughs> it should be i'm sure you'll have a great time <laughs> i hope so we'll find out but yeah look if, if you're there if you're there if you're listening and maybe you're there right now uh then say hello but um today's episode all about mental health um we're going to start with a very personal um account of someone who is neurodiverse uh, who also happens to be an entrepreneur and founder uh, alex craven so we'll play this interview and then we'll be back with some thoughts on it on it afterwards i'm chatting to alex craven alex you're one of the co-founding team at the data city how are you this morning i'm very good thank you nice to meet you thanks for having me on up in yorkshire i assume i am yes based in leeds Nice weather there. I've got to. I've got to be honest. In Kent at the minute, it's twenty-three degrees and rather lovely. Yeah, it's not that nice. Well, it's Yorkshire. <laughs> it's, a, it's it's all right. But it's God's own county, so we're well. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, look, before we get into anything else, you want to tell me a little bit about who the Data City are? 
Yeah, so the, the Data City is a, is a tech startup. Um, we started in earnest in 2018. Um, we basically provide data on what companies do and how many of them do it. Uh, and we predominantly uh, sell that as a SaaS platform to government, um, corporate finance and M&A teams and business to business marketing teams. This might be a really stupid question, but why would they be interested in that data in particular? What what, what are they doing with that data? So it, it probably sounds slightly ridiculous, but actually the if you want to find companies that do something, you currently only really have two options. <clears throat> you can buy a database of companies which will be classified by their SIC code, or you can use Google. Mm-hmm. But if you've ever tried to find all the companies that do something in agritech, for instance. Um, that's very painful because there is no SIC code um, and agritech companies pick hundreds of different SIC codes that come from all sorts of um, different points of view on it. Um, and they often don't describe themselves as agritech companies. So if you try and use Google, you are, and particularly if you don't know the sector, you're trying to discover what's in it. Um, you've got to try and guess the keywords that they might rank on. Then you've got to sift through all the search results. Uh, and then you, and, and ultimately, you know, you'd be familiar with using Google. You don't know whether you found all the companies, right? You might, you find the ones that have uh, got the best SEO agencies or have paid the most for Google ads. Um, and it takes weeks to trawl through all those results. So basically we provide an alternative to that. We, we provide a machine learning platform that allows you to show our platform the sorts of company you're looking for and then it learns what you're looking for and does all the graft for you, provides you with a list of all the companies that do uh, the thing that you're interested in. And, and so, what does that mean for government? So uh, if you are trying to develop economic policy uh, to support the future of jobs in the UK, um, in tech particularly, so you know there are no SIC codes for tech, you need to know how big the sector is today, how fast it's growing, and therefore how much support or potential it has. You need to know where it is. Um, there's other aspects like you need to know if Russia's just bought key parts of it, which um, has been a, historically has been a quite a big problem. Um, and there are really key policy agenda items like the road to net zero, where if we're going to meet our carbon in, uh, objectives, um, you need to know whether you've got a, a national and local supply chain which is going to enable you to meet those objectives. You know, uh, net zero sounds sexy, but actually massive parts of it are about efficient waste management, right? It's, you know, uh, not what we would consider traditionally a sexy sector, but there's huge amounts of innovation going on there. Um, But without a platform like ours, most of that's invisible to government. So they they don't know how to support it and they don't know how realistic their objectives are. Uh, And, you know, a lot of it is you need a local supply chain because otherwise you're going to have regions sending all of their waste in a very high carbon way to other parts of the country a long way away. Just sort of practical things like that need solving. So I think I think we'll come back to, to some of this stuff because it's it's worth unpacking in a little bit more detail. But um, if we kind of turn to, to you as an individual um, first, um, you have been an MD, a founder of, of organizations in the past. How was... How was your experience this time around heading into the pandemic? Um, not that you knew it at the time, obviously in 2018, but kind of not not too long after. Obviously, 
everything changed slightly as, as, as we knew it. And, and how has your experience as a founder been this time around? So it's definitely easier <laughs> second time around. Well, when my mother is, I probably have more than one. Uh, I've had one main business, but I've also dabbled in lots of other side projects. So um, in, in pure business terms, you know, you've made a lot of mistakes. Well, I've been running my own companies, company since I was 23. Um, and when you're 23, obviously, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience to pull on made a lot of mistakes, um, but I've lived quite a lot of business lives, consequently, even you know, for people my age and now 45, um, which does make it easier. You know, I know how to do a lot of stuff. I've uh, become comfortable with my own weaknesses, which I think is critical, because uh, it enables you to you know, bring the right team around you sooner rather than later, rather than struggling through uh, issues you know, and, and aspects of business management that you're not actually that suited to doing and focus on the stuff that you're good at and enjoy. Um, so from that point of view, it's a lot less stressful. You know, I've totally rejected the concepts of hustle culture, which I just think are, um, are we allowed to swear on this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> which is just total bullshit. You know, I, I think and a very dangerous thing for people to push at founders. The belief that um, you are the person on your own who will make your business successful and you must work 90 hour weeks and you know all the rest of it for sure we all end up working hard sometimes it's needed but mm. for it to be your default thing is uh, counterproductive not just because you risk burnout but actually it's stopping you doing what you actually need to do to build a successful business, which is to build a team. You can't do it alone. You need to build a team around you. And if mm. you're fueled with the belief that throwing yourself at every problem and throwing hours at it will fix everything, it will stop you thinking about your business and working on your business. If all you're doing is working in it and making the right decisions about who to bring on when, you know, and I think a lot of business growth is about bringing really great people in around you a lot sooner than you really can afford to do. And take so this is, risks, right? This yeah. is interesting because yesterday I, I was judging. Um, I was I was asked imposter syndrome kicking in all over the place with this, but asked to be uh, a part of the judging panel for the Hustle Awards, <laughs> um, which is you know aimed at startups. Um, but one of the other judges was a founder, very successful founder. Um, but he half jokingly and I think half seriously said, "You know what? It is a load of rubbish." and a lot of the time, I think I should turn around to people and tell them that they should just do one hour's worth of work before three o'clock, and it'll probably be a really good hour's worth of work where they achieve some really tangible stuff and then just go and chill for the rest of the day and enjoy life. Yeah, and also, you know, what's it all about? You know, if all you ever do is work, um, and, and badly, because let's be honest, you know, like you can't, because what it's telling you is that you need to be the, you know, the, the visionary, the leader, the marketing department, the sales department, the production department, the customer service department, you know, all these things, which for sure as a founder, when you start a company, you know, these don't exist as a single department. You've got to get involved in each of them. But um, from the point of view of as quickly as possible, removing yourself from them, because um, that's how your business grows. It's all about that constant process of making yourself redundant. You build a function, you design repeatable processes, you work it out, 80% of it, and then you bring someone who's going to do it way better than you can in, who's going to see what you're trying to do, is better at it than you will 
ever be, even if you focus on it full time, and then pushes you out of it, frees you to focus on what actually you, know, you really need to be doing. So yeah, now, I, I did a, a, a talk on what would I tell my uh, 23-year-old self as a founder. But, uh, and it's stuff like this. You know, it's, it's don't kill yourself. <clears throat> you know, I, you know, I used to really believe that. You know, sleep when you're dead. Mm. Actually, yeah, careful because that might come sooner than you hoped. Yeah. What do you think it is in your personality that made you a... Uh... A founder in like let's be honest you know if you did that when you were 23 and you're now in your mid 40s you're talking about kind of the early to mid noughties when all right sure there were some trailblazing founders you know you obviously uh there were the likes of steve jobs and so on to look to but it wasn't it wasn't a thing like it is now i think instagram has almost made kind of like you say kind of startup entrepreneur founder lifestyle a thing um what do you think it is with a bit of self-reflection that has made you someone that even from that early age went, right, I'm going out on my own path. Uh, so the honest answer to that, I think, and I didn't realize this until um, we were just going into lockdown is because I'm ADHD. And the, and I didn't know I was ADHD at the time, but um, I got diagnosed just as we were heading into lockdown. And um, the self, because, you know, the, the question... I sort of had a sense that I was unemployable before my diagnosis, but then the diagnosis basically tells you why you're unemployable. And because, um, uh, you know, for, for, I don't expect the, the listeners to know much about ADHD particularly, but there, there are 15 uh, separately diagnosed so far components to ADHD, but, and um, different people express different parts of it so everyone's ADHD is different but in my case I have um, attributes of ADHD which make it very hard for me so I have a heightened sense of injustice uh, I have um, uh, a oppositional defiance disorder trait within me which I wasn't a problematic I wasn't the stereotypical problematic child but um, if I don't agree with the rules that someone's put in front of me I, I don't follow them I, I I have sort of what feels to me like a very strong moral compass of my own. And if someone else's way of doing things seems wrong to me, I literally can't do it their way. So I do it my own way. And that basically led me to set my own company because I got, um, I went to work one day and uh, I was really ill. And I tried to stand up from my desk and uh, basically collapsed and had to sort of be, you know, picked up off the floor and sat in my seat. And I said, I don't think I, I was like, I need to go home, obviously. Um, and I don't think I can drive. And my employers at the time said, uh, uh, no, you'll be all right. Off you go. And, uh, and then they docked my pay. And uh, basically, this, you know, my origin story is I went to the pub when I got better and I was not very happy about this. And my... Um, Girlfriend at the time's brother was technical and one of my other mates was creative and it was 1999 and the internet was kicking off and basically we had a few pints and by the end of it, I'd strong-armed them into forming a web design agency. And that was it. <laughs> you know, it didn't even occur to me not to do it. I just was pissed off and I wanted to do this other thing and not have to put up with stuff like that. Look, I, I appreciate I'm going to ask this question and um, it's inarticulate and it's a nuanced um answer probably but forgive me for it being a bit clunky you said there that your 
unemployable that you have a heightened sense of injustice that if rules don't make sense you won't follow them is it on you to be aware of that to moderate it is it on businesses to be aware of that and to create an environment in which you can work because there are a lot of people out there who are neurodiverse and and there has to be a there has to be a place where these two come together right yeah I mean, no, i think that i think that's actually very articulate but the um so the answer to that is it's entirely individual i think i'm lucky um a lot of people with my condition go through a schooling experience that pops them out the other end with extraordinarily low self-esteem and a in a dialogue that tells them that they're a failure um, because of these things. So they will struggle in, an, in a fixed, structured academic environment and um, will be labelled as someone with poor behaviour. For sure, I did some stuff as a kid that, you know, is I would not want to see my own children do. But, um, but I wasn't sort of obviously um, uncontrollable. I was always sort of thinking creatively around the rules put in front of me and finding ways to succeed in my own way. But my objective was always to get the grade or to pass the exam or whatever. So I, you know, I went to university and I got through the system. But um, you know, but I ended up doing a philosophy degree. Um, I think again, you know, by, by chance really. But again, I don't think I could have done any other degree because it was it really allowed me to choose to part of being adhd is you you really struggle to focus on tasks you don't enjoy so i enjoyed the subject a lot so i got through it you know, had i gone and done uh, something else um perhaps more career focused i would not have um so for me um you know the answer for me is to probably to work for myself you know i am happiest working for myself but other people may not feel or may not, you know, have the rest of my makeup. You know, I'm not not just ADHD. To be successful as an entrepreneur or even as a freelancer, you know, they may really struggle with the aspects of trying to run their own thing, right? Which is a lot of admin and, and all the rest of it, even as a freelancer, which again I, I would struggle with. I need people around me to do my admin. Um, you've got to find your own way, and there isn't there isn't really an, an easy answer to that. So. I think ideally it's a bit of both, isn't it? It's it's letting people with ADHD know that the system, if you want to call it that, isn't designed for us. Um, and we need to help them be better at designing, particularly all it starts in school, it needs to change in school. Then we need to educate employers that the ADHD people do have a lot to bring. They're typically extremely creative problem solvers, can think around problems and all the rest of it, um, but need support. You know, they will not submit timesheets. They will not do lots of what seem like really easy menial tasks to neurotypical people, but are mountains to climb for us. Um, so they can be supported to be successful in the workplace and they can add a lot of, a lot of value. So, but it's, it's just entirely individual. So you're talking there about um, how organisations, how companies kind of um, can, can make sure that they are places where, where people who are neurodiverse can be comfortable working. Do you, do you think we have a bit of a problem in that there's attitudes that are treated somewhat jokingly around stereotypes of technologists that aren't particularly helpful in actually making people feel welcome or comfortable at work? Yes. 
In short, so how many neurodiverse people are going to in an interview uh, from it today? I, I would say none, or, or a few very brave people, or a few people who are fortunate enough to have found a company that have sort of gone with a neurodiverse welcome sort of uh, recruitment message. But I know, you know, um, yeah, one of my friends who's ADHD has just completed a PA, PD, uh, PhD which is an amazing achievement for somebody with ADHD. That is like, she didn't know she was ADHD when she started it. <laughs> and uh, it took her much longer than she would have hoped. And had she known she was ADHD, she probably would never have started it, but she finished it. Because that self-motivation to do something you, you lost interest in is unbelievably difficult. You know, but then she entered the job world again. And uh, we had that conversation about when do you tell them? Because there's a lot of stuff we need. Uh, ideally, like um, stuff that really helps. We're often, we're often very fidgety, uh, standing desks, fidget cubes. There's actually, we're registered, you, you're classed as disabled, so you can actually get support from uh, the government. So they will actually give grants to support you in your work. So there's uh, software which can help. There's uh, yeah, all sorts of other bits and pieces, depending on what your particular um, symptoms of ADHD present, um, all the way up to providing you with support workers. Uh, which are funded by the government, which, you know, like, so if your weaknesses are admin and what have you, if you're particularly um, struggling, the government may actually fund the business to recruit somebody to assist you, which actually, you know, as a business owner, um, could be quite attractive, you know, so have, having somebody with a creative mind to help me solve problems, but comes with a, like, essentially, you know, some sort of PA, AEA support function could, uh, could be a really attractive proposition and you might actually employ, that might be funded part-time by the government, but you might choose to employ that person full-time and use them in uh, other capacities. So there's, so that, yeah, the short answer is, uh, is yes. And then the, you know, there, it's not obviously I am my, my particular uh, neurodiversity is ADHD, but there are lots of others, you know, there's um, autism and Asperger's, which is very common and, and uh, you know, anecdotally massively over-indexes amongst developers. Um, but I don't know how much data is that on that. There's a lot of anecdote about it. What's the data on that? But, you know, having employed a lot of developers myself and um, about 50% of people with ADHD are also autistic. Um, done a lot of research around the, the topic. The um, It's obvious that I have worked with, you know, and actually since becoming self-aware, I've spoken to and um, I've spoken to people who are diagnosed and they have a very different set of requirements. You know, they find, uh, again, it's very individual, so I don't want to stereotype, but you know, a lot of the time they, you know, they are, there is a stereotype of developers being antisocial, working, you know, till three in the morning in the dark room and all of this stuff, which we, you know, society says is, is quote unquote weird, but actually that makes total sense to them. You know, that's that's when their tribe, because their, their tribe is often a digital tribe, it's online because it's people like them. They actually feel great social anxiety coming into a workplace because they don't, um, you know, they don't read what we, you know, neurotypical, or, you know, even people neurodiverse like myself read in terms of uh, people's behavioral signals. Um, and it causes a lot of stress. And actually, you know, these are a lot of, you know, and, and there's this sort of great return to work moment slash don't turn to work conversation. You know, a lot of developers don't want to work in a work environment. They want to work at home. 
and their social interaction is digital first. You know, whether that's you know whether that's good for them as an exclusive work environment or not, I'm not qualified to say. There's some people saying it's important that we don't lose them to you know never leaving their homes, which I obviously intuitively feels that there might be something that he's considering there. So maybe you know hybrid working practices and, and um, making sure that they do have social interactions could be important for them individually. But I don't know. You know this stuff needs working out. And um, and then the other challenge is a lot of these guys are undiagnosed. So how do you even begin with that? Sort of, you, know, you might be able to look at someone and think this sort of person probably is. Um, but how do you support someone who doesn't have a diagnosis? How do you even broach the subject? Yeah. I, I don't want to just move on from this and, and leave it kind of abruptly ending. I mean, are there any resources? Are there any uh, sites that you push people towards that you think might be helpful to look at as an employee yeah, or even employee? Yeah, so there's um, there's a lot of content on the internet. So there's there's quite a few charities uh, based around ADHD and autism, which if you Google, you'll you'll find. There's um, obviously I'm more familiar with the world of ADHD. So there's a there's a website website called Attitude, and then there's a lot of uh, therapy and support organisations. So um, there's one I use, which is called ADHD Head Stuff, which are uh, a team of people who have ADHD running a support service for people with ADHD. And it is every bit as chaotic as anyone who deals with us with ADHD uh, might not know, but it's also full of people who really get it, right? So it's it's a fantastic resource. And they can help you get uh, your diagnosis. They help you work out. Part of the challenge, particularly with ADHD, is if you go through the medical system, what happens is you get referred to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist's answer to this is meds. And uh, meds are really important and really helpful, but... Uh, only a part of what you really need to do. They don't tend to go into the sort of self-management side of it uh, much. Whereas uh, working with a therapist actually is really useful. So um, I've used meds, but I'm not on them now. Um, but what the, through them, you learn how to treat. So your exercise is extremely important to me. Sleep's important. I don't, you know, sleep is not something that comes easily to me. But uh, learning through these people what my triggers are uh, helps me achieve a much more balanced um, self. I'd sort of discovered exercise by accident, but um, having it explained physiologically why it's good for you um, makes it, you know, it, medically it's, it's causing a dopamine release, which is uh, we struggle to produce dopamine. Um, you're like, all right, yeah. So, so you know, it, it does little things like on your daily routine, like when you're feeling a bit tired and you can't be bothered going to the gym, you go. Whereas before, I probably wouldn't have, you know, because I know if I don't go, that focusing on my work for the first four or three hours of the day is going to be difficult. Yeah. And in my agency life, I'd developed some really bad habits. Like I, agency, I used to run a marketing agency, which is like a thousand miles an hour. You're getting smashed from all sides with all sorts of exciting slash stressful slash, you know, very active environment, which thrive on from an ADHD point of view makes me massively hyper. So I'd go to the pub every lunchtime and have three pints. And, uh, and that was to bring myself down, but I didn't realize what I was doing. I just thought I was, you know, we'll go to the pub for a few pints, won't we? And then I'd go back and do an afternoon's work. Everyone else would be asleep at the desks, and I'd be like doing the best work in my life, you know. And then I didn't, you know, people are. So you recognise it's not normal, but then they explain to you what's going on. They're like, right, because you're you're massively hyper, so you're bringing yourself down so you can focus. Um, 
and then I'd write a pitch. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. Blend on that, shall we? <laughs> no, fascinating. Look, I'm, I'm really useful, I'd imagine, to people out there who, who might be struggling and not, not quite aware why or even are and looking for some resources. So thank you for, for being so open. Um, you mentioned at the beginning about changes to the job market uh, and race to net zero. Uh, just to, to wrap up the interview, that's, that's part of uh, the conversation you've been having um, with Leeds Digital Festival, Leeds Digital mini fest was was a week or so ago there's obviously going to be the the bigger festival um in the autumn are you part of the committee that organizes the festival right uh i have been yeah i'm lapsed at the moment because i've been really busy but uh yeah well, okay that's the, fair enough yeah, i was part of the team that set it up and then um i was on the advisory committee so i'm uh but I'm, i haven't actually attended the session for a long time so i don't want to i don't want to mislead it's it's all them uh but yeah, this time was focused around sustainability. So yeah, we we talked about net zero and then um, uh, haven't planned the one for uh, September yet. But if you're you're in Leeds or even remotely and want to kind of tap into that to that network in 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 Leeds and in, in Yorkshire, um, what would you what would you say to people to suggest that they should as someone who has been involved, who is still involved when you can be? What's great about the festival? So the concept is a bit like the Edinburgh Fringe. So anyone can put an event on under the banner and there's no cost. So consequently, there are hundreds of events and uh, tens of thousands of employees and it is now global. So it's a bit like, you know, it, it, we had more events than South uh, by Southwest. Wow. Last yeah. yeah. So, uh, and obviously the hybrid nature of it enabled that, you know, digital only events mean that we had people from there's something like 40 countries at the last one and people from different countries putting on events as part of the festival under the banner so it's a lot but you know i think the first thing is don't think about it as a leeds it's called leeds digital festival but it's it's a digital festival based in leeds uh, for but it spreads across yorkshire it's going over to manchester hull all sorts of places uh, and digitally it's global um and it's an opportunity to put an event on you know, so you can attend what is an amazing lineup and find, you know, stuff that is relevant to you and get as involved or not as possible. You know, so, and like in the Fringe, if you've ever been, some of them are tiny events in the back room of a pub and some of them are stadia sized, you know, mega events. Um, and some of them are really cool. Uh, uh, some of them are really nerdy. Some of them are just fun, you know, so there's a lot to do. Um, but equally, if you're looking for a platform, it's a great platform because you put an event on, it gets promoted by Leeds Digital Festival. And, you know, they basically, you know, that in my experience, you don't need to do a lot else. It gets, you fill your event. So, you know, we put one on this time. I mean, we only really decided to do it about two weeks beforehand. Started advertising it about seven days beforehand and had a hundred uh, people. So, you know, you can't say... Can't say fairer than that, can you? Get involved. Yeah. Well, look, I really appreciate your time today, Alex. Um, and thank you, as I said, for being so open and and uh, and honest about your experiences. And uh, I hope that the the data city continues to go from from strength to strength. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Right. What what kind of resonated with you here? Um, I think what resonated on a personal level. I um, when Alex mentioned about the school system and how it didn't help him much 
in regards to obviously him having ADHD. Um, I think it's something that resonates with, I think, most young individuals. I think back in the day, well, nowadays, they're more in touch with their emotions and all that kind of stuff. Like kids and parents are more involved in that situation. But when I was in secondary school or talking about my background, um, like my parents are black, so it's kind of frowned upon, not frowned upon, it's not spoken about like mental health issues and all that type of stuff. So whether it's my best, well, one of my best friends had ADHD, it wasn't talked about. And when Alex talked about having therapy, instead of going to a psychiatrist, which would just give you meds, um, I think that was an absolutely excellent thing to say because my friend was on medication. And now that he's old enough to make that decision for himself and he hasn't been through therapy, he doesn't take the meds. And he can get into certain situations which can be very, very uncomfortable for him. So that's kind of how, that's kind of my thought process when hearing the podcast. And I think listening to that, it would relate to every single person in any way, shape or form, whether you have like any sort of educational disability or any, anything that you struggle with really. Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of chat around mental health and mental well-being in, in Mental Health Awareness Month, and lots of people will be posting well-meaning um, advice and uh, content at the moment. But I think it's, it was really interesting to hear it from the point of view of, right, here's someone who is neurodiverse, here's someone who has ADHD, who had, I, I suppose, has learning difficulties in terms of the school system and so on, um, doesn't conform, doesn't, you know, he just talks about, developers who maybe have um asperger's or autism and you know yeah. them, them working at three o'clock in the morning and it being classed as weird by um you know normal and that's with yeah. kind of air quotation marks because yeah. what is normal but exactly. normal society right yeah and because of that lack of understanding and because of the lack, I suppose, of as you saying in, in some cultures the ability to speak about it openly yeah. Um, or the willingness to kind of countenance that there is that going on and it needs to be addressed, it pushes people into into negative mental well-being because yeah. they're not getting the support or the understanding or even have the self-awareness that they need to make positive changes. Yeah, I mean, even as being a man, I'm sure, David, you're like, how old, like 27, 28? Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. You, you know, but, you know but, flying well enough, you can add about, you can add 10 but, years. But, like, when you were younger, you were told that boys don't cry. You were, you were probably yeah, yeah. told, I mean, I was told that boys don't cry I'm 22 years of age. So I think it's a thing where it's not even just my cultural background, it's, it could be gender specific as well, if you know what I mean. Like, boys are told yeah. not to cry, boys are told to be manly and not express their feelings and emotions the way that we should be allowed to in a sense yeah i mean i come from a from a pretty working class part of the country northeast ex-coal mining community and it was obviously very different culturally but the sentiment there around masculinity was pretty similar you know yeah and it's only in recent years where you see kind of t-shirts with you know um boys get sad too and stuff like that and beginning yeah. to kind of open up that conversation and i think it's really kind of it's really inspiring that someone um, as successful as as Alex, 
who through the data city has built a very successful organization is self-made is um is an entrepreneur is someone that that a lot of guys will probably look up to in terms of his achievements yeah is there going you know i've i've struggled and i think he says it in a way that's relatable and funny as well which let's face it with guys is kind of important so i think i think kind of telling the story about you know, I was hyper and then I'd go and have three pints at lunch to kind of bring him down and do the best work. I did was... laugh at that part. <laughs> I won't lie yeah. to you. But that's, that's the way to get through, right, isn't it? That's that's the way for guys to go, oh, that's a funny story. Oh, hang on yeah. a minute. Let's actually have a think about that and really think yeah. about what's being said there and going it on. It needs to be relatable, especially for men, to actually, for it to actually resonate in our heads, in all fairness. Because if we can't relate to it, I mean, it's to do with every gender but if we if i'm just speaking for myself if i can't relate to it i'm not gonna really pay attention to it as much per se mm-hmm. am i i'm not gonna take it in i'm not gonna think oh maybe at 23 i could do the same or i mean i'm 23 this year so who knows maybe one day i can start another the data city or something like that <laughs> yeah absolutely i don't why not yeah moving away from the hustle culture though but yeah um anything else i mean I, I thought it was fascinating that he talks about kind of standing desks uh software that can help depending on systems or symptoms rather uh support workers funded by the government so as a business owner being able to get someone who can problem solve but also has a pa that was all news to me i also i'd never heard of fidget cubes before never i i'm still i'm still trying to comprehend what it really is to be honest without so, looking up i mean i assumed it was somewhere where you just kind of go and get a lot of that tension out. Um, uh, let's let's as we're as we're talking, fidget cubes. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that Google's going to help me on this because it, it looks like some kind of toy or sens- sensory education. But I'd I'd be fascinated to know what they are and how they work. I think it definitely does help with concentration. I actually had a friend. Uh, it may, what well, I'm guessing, it might work like a stress ball or something like that, wouldn't it? Yeah, perhaps. Maybe it is something like that. Maybe, yeah. yeah. That's what I would have thought. But I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear from from anybody who's got who's got a similar experience and can tell us what, what techniques worked with them. Because I think it's the kind of stuff that typically doesn't get thought about by employers or hasn't and is beginning to be. Yeah, 100%. Now, we also talk a lot about Leeds Digital Festival towards the end of that uh, interview as... Um, You'll be aware uh, from the beginning of the interview, Alex is based in Leeds. Leeds Digital Festival, certainly worth getting involved in. Um, have a look at their homepage, leedsdigitalfestival.org. There is a two-week festival, 19th to the 30th of September, that you can get involved in. So don't uh, hold back on that point. We're going to shift to the second interview of the episode, which Salam hasn't heard yet. So he's probably going to be quite scared what I'm talking about right now. Uh, but we've got an interview with Mind Labs, and it's all about loneliness, which is the theme of this year's Mental Health Awareness Month, um, yeah. and also just general good mental health well-being practices. So there's some there's some practical advice for anyone here to listen to and to try and uh, try and uh, enact into your daily lives. But very quickly, um, social social media and loneliness, is that something that you struggle with, mate? Is that something that I struggle with? Um, or can relate, can <sighs> kind of understand kind of where people are coming from with it? I think I understand where people are coming from. I, I can see why people would match those two together because you can spend hours on your phone. I mean, hours. 
and you may not feel like you're lonely but you like it's not something that you're thinking about at that moment in time so say for example mm. i could scroll f- through tiktok for about an hour or two hours if i'm being really honest and i'm not thinking that i'm lonely but at that point like you're not with anyone you're not you, you don't feel any sense of being at home like you're just there by yourself and i think it it does have something to do with like so like social media and loneliness do definitely correlate 100% i think, I think scrolling in particular mindless scrolling is very yeah. unproductive time that everyone falls into the trap of 100%. and then you kind of go what, what have i done here it's not yeah you yeah. end up in a rabbit hole especially in more content has been created and especially over lockdown and all that kind of stuff everyone's become more creative and it's meant that people are more entertained by those things that they see on social media so you can end up in a any sort of rabbit hole um on youtube you end up seeing things about the illuminati and whatnot because you're scrolling through that type of stuff and you end up at 3 a.m in the morning looking at something that you didn't even intend to look at in the first Mm. place and look, I'm a big advocate for the for the benefits of obviously for social media and yeah. digital content and so on. Um, but I think I think this one's a, this one's good. This is quite an extreme example. Our guest Anne Sophie has cut herself off from social entirely. It works for her. It might not work mm-hmm. for other people. There are benefits there, absolutely. Um, but have a listen to this, Salem. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been good. So I'm chatting to Anne Sophie, uh, head of mindfulness at Mind Labs. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, David? Not too bad, thank you. Thank you for making some time to chat. Thank you for having me. Uh, first question then: Who are Mind Labs? Who are Mind Labs? So Mind Labs is a video-first mental wellness platform. Um, it's basically an app where you go to get all sorts of content that helps you support you on your journey to better mental health. Why video first, if you don't mind me asking? So the video first um, concept is just based on our tendency to connect better to real people, um, to focus on faces as well. A lot of the time, what I find with meditation apps is that you can really easily zone out. You have it running passively in the background. Your phone might be in your pocket. You might you know, get distracted and do something else or see notifications on your phone. If you have somebody's face in front of you you're much more likely to reconnect whenever you're zoning out to watch the instructor and to follow their lead and I think over time as well if you get connected to an instructor that can help you feel more secure and confident in exploring some of those deeper um, topics. Is there a way in which you try and differentiate it from, I suppose, from the work platforms that we're all used to? Because there is this thing of Zoom fatigue, isn't isn't there, after the after the pandemic, that we're all on kind of video call meetings back to back to back. So I suppose it's kind of trying to differentiate slightly how your platform looks and feels versus a just another work call or a meeting. Yeah, absolutely. I think the difficulty with Zoom fatigue is our feeling that we need to perform or, you know, that's the reason why we might be wearing some nice clothes on top and then sitting in underpants or in slippers underneath and um, having to smile or having to engage. There's also a lot of research that's come out with um, our likability and that has a lot to do with the lag in in our Zoom recordings. So if you say a joke and there's some sort of the connection's not great and there's a little bit of a lag and I don't immediately laugh, then 
that's going to strain our relationship. And so there's a lot of things that are go- that's going on in the background. We're trying to analyze behaviors and communicate effectively and smile and be presentable and consider, you know, what's going on in our background? Is it too noisy? Am I speaking at the right cues? And the benefit with um, our platform is that I mean, you can do it in the comfort of your own home. Nobody is watching you. You can see the instructor, but they cannot see you. So wear whatever you like, you know, make whatever faces you want to make. We have some classes where it's like lion's breath, for example, where you stick out your tongue and you scream um, or once with like very heavy breathing where sometimes, you know, you might get some snot out of your nose, but nobody's watching you. It's you won't have those those same issues. I think you're not going to be concerned about how you're presenting yourself. You're just going to be focused on, you know, bettering yourself. I've taken to hiding my own face with meeting notes whenever I'm on video calls because I, <laughs> you know, I'm sure like everyone, watch myself far too much at some stages during the pandemic, and you kind of become very aware of your your own ticks and. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, with with larger meetings where I'm not necessarily saying anything, I'm just listening in. I've just I just turn my camera off and we don't ask questions. Everybody has their own needs and privacy in our company. So. So so who is the platform aimed at primarily? Is there a is there a very kind of core group of people that you think, yeah, this this works for in particular? Yeah. um, Well, so it's it's something that can help anyone. Uh, It's aimed at the general public, but we are mostly looking at these optimizer type of personalities, people who are, you know, going to the gym to get the best out of their bodies and then who want to go to the sort of gym where you can train your mind and get the best out of your mind where you can not just work on mental health issues like feelings of loneliness or depression or anxiety, but also work towards just better mental resilience. So a the capacity to deal with stress when it comes your way or to better handle emotional situations and to self-regulate. So if I kind of take the the fitness analogy, I love to run. And when I go to the gym, I do resistance work to stop myself getting injured. Mm. Is there a similar thing that, you know, you practice good mindfulness, good, good kind of mental well-being, it will potentially stop you from falling into um, a, a situation where you you have a mental health um, situ- kind of challenge, I suppose, or problem. Yeah, you can definitely build up your resilience to withstand whatever ups and downs life throws at you. Um, you can, for example, do a gratitude meditation every day. And gratitude, that's that's one that's that I really love because not only will you feel immediately better afterwards, you have that like that immediate effect from doing a meditation, but it also increases your baseline level of gratitude. And so you just end up walking through this world, just seeing the best in people, trusting people, trusting yourself, feeling grateful for everything. And I mean, that has, that has so much significance, not just on your mental health and how you interact with the world, but how people perceive you, how they interact with you and also for your physical health. You mentioned loneliness. Loneliness is a, a particular focus of this um, year's Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, we've obviously heard a lot about the potential damaging effects when it comes to technology on our ability to form relationships. It was only last yesterday, actually, kind of yesterday evening, I was sat in the garden talking to my brother-in-law who's talking about this kind of rise in anxiety amongst teenagers as well. Um, and perhaps, you know, we were discussing, is that fueled by 
social media. How, how do you view this year's topic? How, how important, well, obviously it is very important, but how do you view the topic of loneliness with regards to this, this wider discussion and conversation? Yeah, I think it's so important, uh, especially since the pandemic. I mean, the recent research that's been done throughout the pandemic and in the aftermath is that people have just been feeling so much lonelier, so much more isolated. Um, and, you know, first of all, we haven't had that ability to go out and connect with others. Our lives have changed completely. I, for example, have just gone to see my grandmother um, who lives in Miami, whom I usually see every year, and I haven't seen her for three years. And she hasn't seen any other member of the family for that amount of time. And it's it, it really is, loneliness is really something that we need to talk about more, that we need to tune into because it's not just, being isolated or being alone. It's that feeling of inadequate social connections and longing or wanting for something more that you can't get and that the pandemic has often taken away from us. So I think it's it's a really pressing matter and we need to figure out how we can work towards feeling connected and feeling more embodied within ourselves and connected to other people and the, the things that we do in life. What steps would you promote or would you advocate to someone when it when it does come to trying to feel connected to others? I think it's really it's different for everyone. Social media can it, it's it yeah, social media can really um work for some people and it can have a complete opposite effect for others. Um for for many it's a way to reach out, to share their stories, to connect with like-minded people or people who are going through similar things. And I, I mean, I have a unique experience with social media myself because I, I was on there sharing a lot about my life and my views and my experiences and um, had quite an audience that would engage and that I would feel connected to. But there came a point where I felt that those many connections, just the quality just it didn't match what I was what I was looking for. Um, there were people messaging me every single day, replying to all of my stories, um, telling me that you know they feel the same way, they're going through the same stuff. But but there was some sort of discrepancy um, where I just I felt like that wasn't real, and I felt more lonely than ever with all these people around me, with all these people messaging me, and I removed myself from social media completely. And in the beginning. Um, it's really interesting because all of a sudden you're like, wow, I am completely alone. You know, I'm in the middle of a pandemic. I'm living by myself. I've removed myself from a bunch of people who are reaching out. And what am I left with? And you go through this little, this stage of forging deeper connections with people who are maybe care about you on, on a deeper level, who know you a little bit better. Um, at this point in time, it's been almost a year since I've left social media and I feel, I see less people and I speak to less people, but I, I, I feel much more cherished in the relationships that I do have. And so I might objectively look more alone, but I, I definitely do not feel that way. So I think, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Out of interest, you've got a PhD in neuroscience. 
So I Wait. yeah I started I started I did not complete it I did all the research so technically right. I would have a PhD. Yes. You, you you know a lot more about neuroscience than I do. Let's mm. let's suffice to say to say that. <laughs> did you approach that kind of personal experiment, let's call it, from quite a scientific standpoint, or was it just how you felt? It was. It's it's difficult because I'm definitely someone. I try to look at everything as a sort of experiment. I'm like, okay, if I did this. If I changed X variable, like what would happen? What are the possible outcomes? Um, and I thought about social media a lot because I would look at it and I'm like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling anxious when I log in. I feel anxious when I post something. I feel anxious when I get replies. And what if I change what I post? What if I change what I post about or how, how deep of an insight I give into my personal life? And you, you just kind of make these small adjustments. And at the end, there was just so much trial and error and and I really just sat down with myself and I'm like, what do I want from this? I just don't want to feel anxious or alone. And I'm trying so hard to curate something that's going to make me feel a certain. What if I just remove it completely? I was just, I think I was just sick of it at that point. And I was like, just let's just be done and see how that goes. And it's been going very well. <laughs> but but I, I that's, that's not necessarily the best advice for, for everyone else. Um, but it's what worked for you. It, it, yeah, that, that worked for me, just focusing on closer relationships and investing more in, in meaningful relationships versus trying to trying to connect with everyone about everything at all times of the day. Well, if we just come back then to, to finish um, to Mind Labs more broadly and your role as, as head of mindfulness, if someone is practicing general um, good mental health practices you know and and this is for anybody at home what what small steps could they take because to me kind of gratitude meditation might seem like something that i i wouldn't know where to start with or how to go about but there might be kind of smaller steps that don't quite sound quite so um difficult i suppose to to get into that everyone can practice that can help right yeah, absolutely. And so what we do at Mind Labs is we try and destigmatize those things. Like typically if you think of a meditation or a gratitude practice, even the way that you say it, it sounds like this formal thing that you know, you need to sit down properly and practice it in this way and um follow a certain format, but what we do is we look at the practices that work that have been scientifically vetted and we pick out what it is about these practices that helps us rewire those neural networks that can help us rewire the brain to be more inclined to feeling grateful, to be more inclined to um, being loving or like from coming from a loving place or to be more resilient to stress and adversity. And so mind labs is a great place to start because you sit there and it's no, it's, it, you take that spiritual aspect out of it um, as much as you want to. You can integrate it if you like. But if you were to do a gratitude practice, it doesn't have to look like anything in particular. It can be you waking up and writing three things that you're grateful for in a book um, or just even thinking about them, bringing them to mind. First thing that you do when you wake up, before you check your phone, before you make your coffee, just take a moment to sit and reflect and really bring to mind three things that you're grateful for. And you start doing that every day and you make that a bit of a habit and you'll get into, into the habit of just waking up and 
finding things to like about your life and yourself and the people that you surround yourself with. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, what what have you got planned uh, for Mental Health Awareness Month, given that we're, we're 10 days in? Have you done anything already as an organization? Have you got anything coming up that's, that, that you're excited about? Um, we are, we're about to head out to Leicester Square to do a little bit of a social experiment. Um, our social media girl, Liv, is holding up a big plaque that says, I'm lonely. Will you speak to me? And we are, we're just filming people's reactions. So I'm really excited to see how that turns out because it could go either way, you know, especially in London. It could, it could be that absolutely nobody approaches you on. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm not from London originally, but I lived there for 15 years and. I think Londoners get a get a bad reputation. I think I think so too, and it's the tube in particular. Yeah, realistically, that's where she should be doing it on the tube. Um, that would be more of an experiment. But yeah, we've we've got that, and I'm I'm really excited to see how that goes, and to just go out there and talk to people about loneliness and destigmatize loneliness. You know, because if you don't talk about your feelings of loneliness because you're worried about what other people might think, then that's just going to fuel this negative cycle of feeling even more isolated and disconnected from the world. And, you know, you're not going to get better if you don't talk about it. Yeah. Look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. I hope the experiment goes well. should be very yeah, interesting. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Have a lovely afternoon. You too. Bye-bye.